Hey, so if you have your Bibles, let's open them up. We're ready for the sec, for Second Samuel tonight, the book of Second Samuel. I'm super excited to begin our study in Second Samuel because, unfortunately, you know we had to spend so much of the end of First Samuel going through the life of Saul. And I will be super happy and excited tonight to be done with Saul and be on to King David. So let's take a look. Second uh, Samuel chapter one, verse one. It says, "Now it came." Pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. And on the third day it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Why were his clothes torn and dust on his head? Because that was an ancient um, sign of mourning. It was a way that um, the Jews and Hebrews, and even to this day, that people would mourn. When somebody died, when something terrible happened, when something national happened, the term you read biblically is they would rent their clothes. Literally, they would rip their blouses and they would, um, they would take ashes from the fire and put them on their head. And, and the ashes from the fire would make you very uncomfortable. Sometimes you see that they would mourn in sackcloth and ashes. And literally what that meant is they would put sackcloth on their back and sit in ashes and put ashes on their head. And it would create a, a, a great discomfort and that discomfort would keep you alert and praying and and mourning and so um, these guys show up with their clothes rent and ashes on their head and David saw and David said to him where have you come from so he said to him I have escaped from the land of Israel and David said to him how did the matter go now David is concerned and he wants to know and he asks this, this guy how did it go please tell me and he answered the people have fled from the battle Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there, remember that, he didn't happen to be by chance nothing, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when I looked behind him and saw me, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because he was sure, I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And therefore David took a hold of his own clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. So this young man, no doubt thinking he was going to get a reward from the king, comes with David's, uh, with Saul's crown and his um, and his bracelet, and he tells the story of finishing off Saul. And it says in verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who, who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him, so he died. 
And David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So there does seem to be a little bit of a discrepancy in this story. I don't remember, we kind of were going fast last week. um, And I think I'm going to ask you guys to read part of that on your own. But in the story of the death of Saul and Jonathan, um, the story goes that, that Saul took an arrow. And he was wounded with an arrow, and he probably thought that was going to be the end of him. It was going to weaken him enough that the Amalekites were going to come, and he was afraid what they would do to him. He was afraid that they would um, humiliate him and mutilate him and um, bring him back alive. And, and he, he would rather um, have died than fall into the hands of the Amalekites. So the story says that... Something fell out of the pulpit and landed on my foot, and I thought it was my coffee, and I was going to look down and see coffee everywhere. But um, he, he com- So it says that he falls on his spear, and his armor bearer saw that he was dead, and he did the same thing. And now we have, in the first chapter of Samuel, um, kind of a twist on the story. And this young man comes to David, and he has Saul's um, crown in his wrist. Now, first of all, what's a little bit um, poetic here is the young man is who? What kind of person is he? He's an Amalekite. Now, do you guys remember um, anything about the Amalekites? Now, the Amalekites are super important biblically for us to remember because they they teach us a a, a picture, a biblical picture that's very important. Now, the Amalekites were a a nomadic tribe. They were were like a gypsy tribe. Even some of, maybe even some of the Bedouin um, tribes that still exist today may be ancient descendants of Amalekites, although they don't go by the name Amalekite anymore, nor does that, that, that culture or society survive for today. But the Amalekites through biblical days were a very brutal people. They were, uh, but they were, um, they were, they were, they were dirty fighters. They were backhanded. They wouldn't come and fight you from the front. What the Amalekites would do is they would come from behind and pick you off. They would come in behind battles, and what would happen is as an army would march and and have victory, if the battle continued to move, all the loot and all the spoil of the dead bodies and the things that were there, they would leave until the battle was over, and then they would go and collect them. That was part of the booty of battle. Well, the Amalekites would come in behind the armies, and as they were continuing to fight, they would be looting all the bodies and stealing all the stuff, and then they would travel. It was kind of their culture. They would travel and sell the things that, um, that they stole. And then when the real army that, that killed all the men came back and found all the naked bodies and dead bodies, they, they knew the Amalekites had come through and got them. Now, the Amalekites in, in Israel's history um, were, were, again, were a foe, much like the Philistines, an ancient foe of Israel. And there was a story of the Amalekites who would come in from behind and, and attack the Israeli army from their rear ranks. And, and then um, for this, God judged the Amalekites. And, and, and also, again, a topic that we've talked about in length, um, about the justification of God um, calling Saul to um, have genocide or commit genocide upon the Amalekites, which means that God told Saul to kill every man, woman, child, dog, animal, um, everything was to die. Now, again, your, your atheist friends and critics love this part of the Bible because they love to say that the God they don't believe in and the God doesn't exi- that doesn't exist is immoral. And, and, and so 
Um, but the reality is, and then we defended that, and maybe we don't have to, but we did. We spent lots of time defending the morality of God in this decision and, and unpacked that in length, and we're not going to do it again tonight. But th- this is this group, the Amalekites. And one of the biblical of the Amalekites is the Amalekites represent the flesh. They're a type of flesh in the Bible. And so God prescribes for you a way to deal with your flesh. How is, how is, how is we? How is you? How are we? Um, called by God to deal with our flesh. The Bible says to cut it off, to eradicate it. And the thing about the flesh and the thing about your fleshly desires and the things that you, you struggle with, sins that in your life, the thoughts, the ideas, temptations, God doesn't want us to reform them. He doesn't want us to corral them, to um, do them a little bit less. The language that Jesus used along this same topic, Jesus said to um, cut it off. He said, if your right hand offends you, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you to do? And if your right eye offends you, what are you to do? Pluck it out. Now, the reality is Jesus wasn't talking literally because none of us would have right hands or right eyes, and we'd all be sinning with our left hands and our left eyes. And, and that's, it's, it's strong language to, to prove a point or to say, whoops, to say the biblical truth is that God wants us to annihilate the flesh. We're not to entertain the flesh. We're not to reform it or, you know, rebuke it. We're to get rid of it, to cut it off. And the Amalekites, for 420 years, God called them to repentance. And they were a cancer. And, and they had continued to be a cancer. And God tells Saul to completely eradicate and annihilate them. You guys remember the story, First Samuel 15, Saul goes to the battle, he comes back. Who meets Saul when he gets back from the battle? The prophet, whose book we're reading? Samuel shows up, and Samuel says to Saul, Saul, did you obey the Lord? Did you uh, completely eradicate the Amalekites? And Saul says, well, yes, of course I did. And then Samuel said, well, then why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And, and, um, and then, you know, Saul starts to backpedal a little bit and he says, well, you know, the people, they wanted to save some of the, um, the, the fancy sheep for sacrifice. We could sacrifice them to the Lord and offer them to the Lord as sacrifice. And we kept a few of the choice people and they didn't kill the king and King Agag was there. And, and so Saul's telling this story why he didn't, um, obey the voice of the Lord and in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel then takes his sword and he does what to King Agag? He hacks him up, the Bible says, kind of a violent language that it uses to say that he hacks up King Agag. And then he tells Saul, he gives Saul from the Lord in 1 Samuel 15, the prophecy. And he says, Saul, because you were disobedient to obeying the Lord in eradicating the Amalekites for this reason, the kingdom has also been ripped from you and given to another. And so from that point on, um, and right after that, Samuel goes and he finds this young boy, Reddish, the eighth son of Jesse, who was just a shepherd out in the fields. His father didn't even bother, bother bringing David in when Samuel came for business. And, and after Samuel prayed over all seven of David's brothers and, and the Lord didn't speak over any of them. And he said to Jesse, he said, don't you have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, yeah, David, but he's a, he's a shepherd. He's out in the field watching the sheep so we can all be here. And he said, I'm not leaving until you go get him. And then David comes in and obviously he was the one that, that God called and Samuel anoints him 
um, the next king of Israel. And so the fact that, that um, you know, I've heard somebody teach before, and they were saying because the Amalekites, in the story, what, what Saul admits to is only keeping the king alive and some sheep. And then, and then shortly after that, we run into this young man who's an Amalekite, and we run into some other people. And I heard a, I heard a pastor say, he was a Calvary pastor too, and a great teacher, respected teacher. And he said, well, he said that king, in the process of, of, of um, Saul capturing him and Samuel killing him, he must have sired some kids. Because the Amalekites were still, and I was... And he was a great teacher. He is a great teacher. And I thought, man, that is crazy. Even as a young guy in college, I'm like, that don't make sense. There's no way that that's the way that went down. But so the way I see it is obviously Saul was lying. Saul did not. um, He he left more than just the king alive because there's too many Amalekites that surface after this battle um, all the way through. It was the Amalekites, you remember in chapter 30, where, where David and his men are going um, to fight with the Philistines, and then they get rejected, and they go back to Ziklag, and when they get there, the, they found all their kids, and everybody kidnapped, their city burned with fire. It was the Amalekites that did that, because they, again, were, they were the come-behind type of lowlifes that would, that would do that. And so, um, so now we have this kid, and he shows up. Now, the kid says, and he tells a story that, um, that he got there and Saul was, was not quite dead yet. And Saul asked him to kill him. Now, the, the, the narrative in the last chapter says that Saul fell on his spear and committed suicide. And the idea was that, you know, you'd put your spear where it was going to hit your heart and you'd fall on it, your spear, your sword. I think it records um, spear in this case. Um, so which is it? Is it a contradiction in the, in the Bible? Is it, is it now a lie? Can we all close our Bibles up and go home because we found an error and a contradiction in the Bible? Obviously not. You know, one of the things that, that as you study the word of God and as you, you have a little bit more freedom and understanding this stuff is, is a lot clearer. It doesn't bother you at all. But one of the things I want you to understand because is that the Bible oftentimes just records what happens. Because I think sometimes, like, when, when you're reading the writing of Paul and you're reading through the epistles or something, like, this is the word and the voice of God and everything you read is, is God's word and it's true and it's talking to you. And so you, you take that same kind of approach to everything you read in the Bible, but it actually it doesn't always apply. There are cases, like in this one, there's whole books that are this way, where God is just recording the thoughts of men. So you might have an idea or a thought about God. And so in the Bible, God's recording it, and it lasts like a whole chapter. But it's not true. It's not bond, but you have to catch it in what in order to know that? In context, right? So for example, good example, in the book of Job, you guys know how the book of Job goes? In chapter 1, Job's life turns completely upside down. And then around chapter, I don't know where it is, 4, 5, 6, Job's friends show up. Job's um, 10 kids are dead. All of his animals are dead. His life is upside down. He's got boils breaking out on his skin. He's breaking pottery shards and using the broken pottery shards to scrape the boils off of his life. He, everything around him is completely crashed. And these three guys show up at Job's house, his three buddies, and each one of them take turns. And for 30 chapters, they tell Job what's... Um, 
why this is all happening to him and the philosophy and this and that and on and on and on and on and on. None of which is scripture. None of which is God's heart or God's speaking or the truth. It's in context. God just recording what happened. And, and, and the way we know that for sure, because like around chapter 40, God shows up and he says, hey, you three fools, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what's really going on. And then God explains in the end of Job what's really going on and what the real truth is. And Job's friends do it. Solomon in the Bible is a great example of this in Ecclesiastes. In, in places where Solomon, what happened, and, and, and without teaching Solomon tonight, Solomon's testimony is that Solomon, God allowed, now every, every one of us think, you know, um, if I had a little bit more money, then, then I would be happy. If I, if I had the, the, a little bit more power, I would be happy. If I had a little bit more pleasure, then I would, that's what I'm looking for in life. If I had a little bit more intoxication, then I would um, find what I'm looking for in life. But for every one of us, we're, you know, and for, for the majority of, of, of life and people and 99.99% of the world, they die in search of more money and that happiness that they never catch. And they want to have a little bit more pleasure and they, they seek pleasures and, and things of the flesh and, and, and they never get enough to where they think if they had a little bit more they would, they would find what they were looking for. So God takes one guy in human history and he allows him to have everything there is to have in all these categories, one, one section at a time. So Solomon allow, or God makes Solomon the wealthiest man that's ever lived in human history. He has so much silver and gold that the Bible says they got to a point where they stopped counting it. Any of you guys have so much money that you don't even count it anymore? right? He, so, and Solomon, he was so wealthy that, that he, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't even count the money. He had so much money. And when he arrived at that point in life, Solomon, you know, it's like, it's like climbing up a ladder to the top and thinking, when I get to the top, I'm going to look over and, and I'm going to see the, the joy that I'm looking for. And it's money. And so he climbs this ladder. He is the richest man that ever lived in human history. I would venture to say before or since. I don't think there's anybody who's living today um, or ever has lived um, that, that, that surpassed or would have matched the wealth that Solomon had in his day. Even this, who's the richest man in the world right now? The owner of Amazon? Isn't he the one right now? Um, is that his name? It was until the divorce. <laughs> I want Toph, Eddie. I want Toph. She got half and went the other way. So um, she, she earned it, right? She deserved that. That was hard money. So anyway, she took hard money and she got on. But um, I would say that Solomon was wealthier than that. And, and he gets to the top and he looks over and what does he say? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He finds out this is not the, it's not in money. It's not what made me happy. He said, I know what it is. He said, it's education and it's wisdom. And Solomon began to pursue wisdom. So what does God do? God allows for the purpose of the life of Solomon and for you and I, he makes Solomon what? The wisest person that ever lived. He wrote the Proverbs from his head when he was bored. He was so smart. He was so smart. (laughs) Way smarter than me. He was so smart and so wise 
that the queen of Sheba heard of his wisdom and his wealth and his notoriety that she traveled from Ethiopia to see Solomon. And when Solomon got to the top of wisdom, he looked over and what did he say? Not there. Nope. Vanity of vanity, it's all in vanities. And he said, I know what it is. It's pleasure. And Solomon had a thousand women dedicated to only him. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. You talk about plural marriage. No, them dudes ever got a thousand of them. A thousand wives. What would you do? You couldn't even visit all your wives in a year, in two years. Jeez, you'd forget their name by the next time you got around. And so he, he, he gets to all the pleasure in the world and as much as he wants, and he decides, and God shows him to show you and I that no matter how much he arrived in the pleasure Mecca, and he got to the top and he looked over and he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And then on and on and on in Solomon's story, intoxication with what would be equivalent to our drugs and alcohol and those types of things and, and power and, and, and everything in, in building. And he had, seven, he had the hanging gardens, the seventh wonder of the world. And um, his fame spread throughout the world. And he said, vanity of vanity. So while Solomon is going through this, he's recording. That was a lot to talk about Solomon to say what my point was about First Samuel is that Solomon in some of those writings, he's recording the thoughts of his head. And it doesn't make them Bible. It doesn't make them truth from God's word that we're to live by. Now, you know, what the cults are famous doing, and I always, you know, the easiest, easiest one to spot is when somebody quotes something to you out of the middle of Job and says, look, the Bible says right here in Job chapter 27, verse 5, you can just stop right there because that, that they're just misusing something in the Bible to make it say something it doesn't say because this is Job's retarded friend who's talking and God's recording it. And then God's going to show up in chapter 40 and tell this retard to shut up. That's, that's Bible, not me. Don't laugh at me. So, um, but that's, that's just the way I went down. So, or they'll take a, a passage out of context, out of Ezekiel. I mean, out of, out of Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. And, and they will, um, and it's not, not Song of Solomon. I'm sorry, it doesn't fit that category. But in Ecclesiastes where it's just Solomon thinking and God recording it. So in this particular case, you know, we, we looked at this last week. Remember when um, Saul went down to the witch at Endor? the medium at Endor, and they're having this conversation. It was hard to know what exactly was truth and, you know, or what was this woman, you know, telling Saul lies. Well, here we have this young man, and he comes, and he's telling a story. So one of two things happen here, and neither one, it doesn't matter. Neither one contradict. Either either the, the young man is telling the truth, which is recorded here, and he got there, and Saul was not quite dead. He had a spear somewhere, maybe in his shoulder. He had a, I mean, a spear in his chest and a arrow in his shoulder, and he wasn't quite dead. Saul was a big guy, very possible. And then the young man um, finished him off, killed him like he said and like he told David is true. Or the young man was lying, and he got there, and Saul was dead, and and he said, I happened to get there by chance. Did he happen to get there by chance? No, that's how he made a living. He came in behind the battles and, and stole the goods. So he's coming in behind the fight, and he comes into what he thinks is a real treasure, you know, a real find. He's taking this one straight to the recycle place, you know, to cash it in. And he sees Saul with his crown and his bracelet and his fancy stuff. And so the guy, maybe, maybe the young man finds him dead. If the young man didn't find him dead, 
Don't you think it's a little poetic justice that Saul was eventually killed by an Amalekite? He was killed by the very people that God told him to eradicate. That's the only reason why I personally lean towards the fact that the kid was telling the truth because it just seems to me like it would make sense. And it's an amazing, amazing, huge biblical lesson that if God is calling you in the flesh to get rid of something, to annihilate something, to cut something off, and if you don't obey, then um, eventually it will come and destroy you. The flesh will destroy you. The things of the flesh will destroy your life. And they destroyed Saul's life. When um, in one of the most you know, powerful and famous verses in the Bible, when Samuel killed King Agag and Saul was saying, you know, we kept these sheep here so we could sacrifice him to the Lord. Samuel says for you and I, he says, the Lord does not require sacrifice, but for extra points, anybody? Obedience. Everybody say obedience. The Lord does not require sacrifice, but obedience. Obedience. Remember that. Remember that. When we covered that chapter, I preached that like nobody's business. You guys were saying amen and obedience. And here we are three weeks later and you forgot it already. No, it was probably three months ago. But um, important, important concept. God requires, does not require sacrifice, but obedience. Okay? And so we know what that means, right? God is not interested in in rote, uh, rit- ritualistic um, um, ceremonies and things that we go through to, you know, to obey him. He wants you to obey his heart and his voice. All right, so, so this young man comes, so David kills him. And then twice in this chapter, look at verse 16 in chapter 1. It says, um, I have killed the Lord's what? What was David's policy on killing the Lord's anointed? Don't do it. Don't do it. David just said, hey, I'm not doing it. And, and he could have. He probably had right to. But David's um, policy, and it became a biblical policy, is that I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And so, again, the, the fact that the one that the story is hinged around happens to be Saul, who's a sh- not a nice guy and not a very spiritual person, and the story becomes a, a type of antichrist. But still, David considered him the one who was leading Israel and then the Lord's anointed. And even though he wasn't doing a good job, He said, he's God's man for the job, and I I won't kill him. And then in verse 17, it says, the song of the bow. And then David lamented with his lamentations over Saul and Jonathan. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. What's the book of Jasher? You don't know? I don't know either. Um, when When you tell me, we'll both know. This is what I know about the book of Jasher. It's mentioned one other time in the Bible. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua in chapter 10. And um, we don't have the book of Jasher. We, you know, some of these ancient books that are mentioned, there's other books in the Bible like this that are mentioned for whatever reason. They didn't fit the criteria and the qualifications when the Bible became canonized. And every book and every um, writing that we have in our Bible had to go through a very stringent process in order to pass all the tests to be considered canon. And, and, and what we have is exactly what God wanted. There was nothing left out. There needs to be nothing added. Your Bible is perfect. And the book of Jasher, which David mentions here, was something where they would record um, um, stories and thoughts and ideas. But it wasn't 
um, recorded for the purpose of Scripture because we don't have it. So we don't have to worry about it. And then it says in verse 19, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So, so Gath and Ashkelon were two of the five um, major uh, Philistine cities, and each one had its own king, five Philistine kings of the five Philistine cities. On the mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, for the shields of the mighty is cast away there, the shields of Saul, the anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, do not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty." Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their, in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. I'll just spend two seconds on it, but I'm not going to give it three. In verse 26, David says, Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. There have been some who have tried to pervert this verse to say something that it does not say, and it's blasphemy, and it doesn't say that David and Jonathan had anything else going on besides what the Bible described as um, that, that they were... They were the, the relationship, the brotherhood, and the bond between David and Jonathan is is the pinnacle of friendship. That there was a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and this was David and Jonathan, and they were kindred spirits. And their hearts, the Bible says that 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 God knit their hearts together as one. So, um, and then in verse two it says, and it happened, chapter two, and it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, "Shall I go up to the cities of Judah?" And the Lord said to him, "Go up." And David said, where shall I go up? And he said, uh, how about to Hebron? So David went up there. Now, I want you to celebrate with me because in chapter 2 here of Second Samuel, now uh, Saul is dead and David is doing what that he hadn't done for a long time in verse 1. He's doing what? He's inquiring of the Lord. Do you remember that we had mentioned that David went through that season where, you know, the very strength of David's life was that David had intimacy and relationship with God like no other. David heard and felt the heart of God and he knew the voice of God and he spent time with the Lord and, and he conversated with the Lord. And so he goes through this season at the end of um, the season that he was in at the end of first Samuel when he was running and he was tired and he was in the flesh and he, he hadn't inquired of the Lord at all. And now David is back. We get our David back. And here he's inquiring of the Lord. Now, I think there's something so powerful that happens in verse one that we can learn from. You know, one of the things that God, the Bible says, is that God created you and I for a specific reason. Guys, remember what he said? For his good pleasure, the Bible says. Some people get, get twisted by that. Not me. I don't get too much twisted by anything God says. I don't got any chance. I don't got any alternative. Where am I going? I love it all. But he created you for his good pleasure. Why? Because he wanted to. Because he, he, he found pleasure in creating you. 
And and in pleasure, creating you for his good pleasure means that he created you. And then then thankfully, Jesus defines it and the rest of the word defines it. But he created you for friendship. He created you so he could have somebody to be a friend. Was God lonely? I doubt that. But he created you for his good pleasure. I think it's an amazing thing. I think it's an amazing blessing that puts us in, in such an amazing place that God created you for friendship, for companionship. He created a friend. He created, that's why we have love. That's why in God's mercy and in God's grace and why God decided to create you and I the way that he did with capacity to choose. Because he wanted a friend that loved him. And the only way he would know if you really loved him was he had to give you an opportunity to not love him, to have choice. And so in that, in that choice that you have, there's great reward for those that the Bible says who gladly bow the knee and confess. Those that gladly love and, and serve God. And the very, the very only opportunity we have for real love is the fact that God gave us all a choice. And God gave you a choice and he loves you and he wants fellowship with you. And, and, and here, David says, Look at David, and it happened after this. Look at verse one. David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to the cities of Judah? Now, what did the Lord say? Go up. And then David asked the question and the Lord said, to Hebron. Why didn't the Lord just say in the first answer, yes, David, go up to Hebron. The Lord didn't say that. The Lord said, yes, go up. And, and what, what, did, what was required for David to get the rest of the answer? Another question. Some of you guys are like, it's cool. It's simple, right? But, but again, God, I believe, he does that. And you see that consistently through the word of God. Abraham being really the father of our faith, the Bible says. But Abraham is the example of it. Because God said to Abraham, Abraham, Go. And, and what did he, the Bible says Abraham did? He got up and went not knowing where he was going. And then halfway there, he's like, okay, Lord, I went. Where am I going now? Am I going the right direction even? And he just went. And then, and then in Abraham's life, it, it's a series of God just giving him the one next little step. You know, the Bible says God's, you know, in the New Testament speak, God's not going to give you the whole picture because half, half the reason is because at this point in your walk, you're not ready to receive it. If he told you everything today, he'd scare the heck out of you. If he told you everything right away or he gave you the full plan, so he just gives you a little piece at a time and as you're able to handle it, one of the reasons. But the, the other reason and the reason that I'm pointing out here is not for that. The reason for here is because what God is interested, listen, in you and I is fellowship, is communication. I think the Lord wanted to talk to David. I think the Lord finds pleasure in talking to you. And you know what the other cool thing is? I heard someone say this, and I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a really, really good way of thinking about it. But he said, um, you know, David here, he's having this back and forth conversation and that you and I, to be encouraged to have a back and forth conversation with God. You know, I encourage people all the time to ask God simple questions that you're looking for answers for. And obviously the the big picture lesson is we're going to get through all of 2 Samuel that we'll point out every time we get to it, and it's a lot, 
is that your life needs to be directed by the Lord and by you doing what it says in verse one, inquiring of the Lord in ways like, Lord, should I go up? Lord, should I buy this house? Lord, should I sell this house? Lord, should I buy this car? Should I sell this car? Lord, should I spank my son or should I give him a hug? Lord, should I take this job? Should I leave this job? Lord, should I, you know, on and on and on and on in every part of your life and every decision, major and little, that you inquire of the Lord and you receive direction in your life from God. That's God's intent. That's God's heart. And that's illustrated here by King David um, having this conversation. But but the thing that I was getting to a second ago was, he said, have you ever um, had a conversation with God as a friend? You know, talk to God, ask God questions. One of the ways you'll be a good friend, you know how you become a good friend, how you become uh, an interesting person and just a good friend to people? You listen, but also you, you ask questions in conversation. Isn't that the, isn't that the, the, the whole skill of being a good conversationalist is that, you know, when you're on the phone or whatever, you're with somebody and nobody's saying nothing and you're looking at each other awkwardly that you can think of some question to ask or something to say that, you know, moves the question along. Oftentimes that comes in the form of a question. You know, oh, tell me about this or asking somebody about themselves. But anyways, what this pastor said was in conversation, you know, asking the Lord questions in conversation, just like a friend. Lord, what do you think about the wall? Should we build a wall? How does it make you feel? You know, Lord, what do you think about the little girl who's missing in so-and-so? How does that affect your heart? Lord, what do you think about, um, you know, 30,000 Muslims dancing around a box in Mecca? How does that make you feel, Lord? Lord, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, whatever. Who knows? Just conversations about hearing the heart of God. And to me, it was kind of revolutionary in a way that, you know, it opens up kind of another um, avenue that I want to explore, another avenue of, of communicating, of fellowshipping, of, of being the friend of God. Do you realize that Jesus said about you and me, he said, I no longer call you servant, but I now call you friend. Like That's powerful. That's powerful stuff that, that the God of heaven wants to be your friend. It's crazy. And we can take advantage of that in love and in relationship. And, you know, I encourage us in our prayer life, maybe a challenge for you guys this week that are here, um, you know, in your prayer life, whether you write it down, I encourage you guys to write things down too. It really helps. Um, journal things, journal what you're reading um, because it, it just, it just, and whether you ever go back and read it again or not, it's not, you're not creating study material that, you know, that you have to go back and study next week. That's not the point of writing it down. But in this week, in, in doing some of those things conversationally, where you're talking to God, where you're asking God some conversations, you know, if you ask God what his favorite color is, like, how am I going to feel an answer about that? You know, like, how is God going to speak to me, pastor? I don't know. He'll speak to you. He's God. He speaks to you lots of ways. You know, he, he, might, he might speak to you through the word. I often tell you guys, I think the number one way that God speaks to me is through the word. Sometimes it's even like, any of you guys see the new Bumblebee movie that just came out? Just you and me, huh? Oh, one other person in front row here, all right. Um, so, um, oh, you guys seen the old Transformer movies though, right? With Bumblebee in it. Maybe not the new one. But what happened is Bumblebee lost his voice box. 
He's the transformer. He's the, the car, the yellow car. He lost his voice box, and, and you, you find out in the new movie how he lost it. So if you haven't seen it yet, I won't spoil it for you. But he loses his voice box. So how does he communicate to um, his, his audience? He tunes the radio, and he finds a, a line in a song that, that answers the question, right? And they'll ask a question, and he'll, he'll fine-tune in the radio, and the, the, the radio will sing this song, and it's, it's the answer to the question. There's your radio. God does the same thing. I mean it. He really does. He'll tune it up. And, and whether it's just like, he, he just, sometimes he'll put it on your heart, Romans. You feel like, oh, I don't know, but I feel like I should be in Romans. And then you start reading. And then that's what God's answer is. It's right there on the line, you know, and God will lead you. Sometimes it, it's kind of random where you just end up somewhere. But God will dial it up in conversation and he'll give you, and it's one line. And sometimes it's in context. It can even be out of context. Because it's a conversation that God's having with you that answers a question in the moment. But God can absolutely, absolutely um, speak to you in that way. So again, the, um, I guess we're not even going to get to chapter 2 because I want to do communion tonight. Um, so I did one verse in 2, but that means I can start fresh in 2 next week. Um, let's do this, if, if you would. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. We're, gonna, we're just going to do our... Um, we're going to do our communion meditation for tonight, and then we're going to, um, in a short minute, I'm going to have the, the worship team come back up and uh, lead us in a closing song so we can all spend a few minutes with the Lord tonight um, in conversation and putting to practice what, what we saw tonight. Um, with that, I say um a lot, huh? I never notice it until I li- if I ever listen to myself teach which I don't do very often because it's hard to do. But um, if I do go back and listen to one of my messages, it's um, 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 um. I'm like, do I really say um that much? Um, I don't know. I heard James McDonald. James McDonald's one of my favorite Bible teachers on the radio out of, out of Chicago. And he's, he's older. He's like my dad's age. And he, uh, he's an amazing Bible teacher. James McDonald is. But he says um a lot, so I felt good about that. <laughs> All right. Um, um. Yeah, like my brother, my brother says, whatchamacallit. You ever hear him say that? Whatchamacallit, whatchamacallit. Some guy was getting upset with him at church, and he's like, Pastor D, you know, I love you and all, but why do you say whatchamacallit so much? <laughs> he's like, whatchamacallit, I don't know, like, I guess because I've been saying it since I was like seven years old, and I can't stop. All right, Psalm 51. Hey, here's the thing about David, listen. One of, one of the things, as, as we get ready for communion tonight, and, and as we take communion again, what we're going to do is we're going to ask everybody to come up to take the communion tray, our cup and bread, and go back to your seat. And as the worship team plays, we're going to ask you to sit quietly with the Lord for one song. We want you to spend time to talk to God. We want to give you an opportunity for God to speak to you. And, and when, when we say pray, and when, for us as a church, right, because we're, we, we, you know, for our culture, you understand that when we say pray, when I say pray, that it doesn't mean talk the whole time. Praying is talking and listening. Praying could just be just listening to what God wants to say to you with an open Bible, with, with, with worship music, something to where that, that praying is a two-way conversation. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians or, or you know, sometimes maybe we, we miss a great opportunity to, to, to pray when we understand that prayer is two-way communication, not us talking the whole time, you know? 
You ever feel like sorry for God or bad for God because he wants nothing but just to be friends and all he gets is a bunch of people that never let him talk? You know, they just, and then they hang up and they leave. And he's like, oh, hold on. I don't ever get to talk. Like you guys, what kind of friends are you? You do all the talking. You never let me talk. So allowing the Lord to speak to us as well as we pray. And, you know, with King David, King David is such an anomaly because he um, committed some very terrible sins in his life. Some bad, bad stuff. Murder, adultery, pride. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. Some bad sins. David killed women and children. Came to God and he said, God, I, I want to build you a house. I want to build a temple. And David was in a palace and he looked out his window and he saw that tent that Moses built next to his house. And he's like, God's still living in a tent and I'm living in a palace. That ain't right. And he went and got Nathan, the prophet. And he said, Nathan, he said, I want to build God a temple. And Nathan was so excited because the king wanted to do spiritual things, you know, and Nathan being the prophet and the spiritual leader of Israel, he just got pumped. And he's like, cool. He's like, David, do all that is in your heart, king. Then he went home, and you guys know the story. God said, uh, Nathan, I didn't tell David he could build me a house. You got to go back and tell him you were wrong. I didn't say that. That's not my word. You got to go back and tell him he can build me a house because he's a man of war, and his hands are too bloody. David killed too many people. He was a man of war, and he was lots of major sins in his life. And, and yet... David is the greatest example we have biblically of intimacy with God, of, of articulation of the feelings and the thoughts of his heart unto the Lord in worship. David is a man after God's own heart. Jesus to this day is the son of David, and, and, and rightfully so. And David is a hero to all of us. He's a hero of our faith. He's a, he's a hero to our God. He's somebody that when our God looks at him, he says, that's a man after my own heart. That man, his heart beats the way mine does. He loves the way that I love. He he thinks the way that I think. He has compassion the way that I have compassion. And what you learn in the life of David is what God is really interested in. And you know, God, God, our father can handle our weaknesses, our inconsistencies, our shortcomings, our struggles. If... Indeed, we have a heart after his. And, and, and that's what God is interested in. God is interested in one thing. You know, David said in Psalm 20 thing, one thing have I desired. One thing. You guys hold in Psalm 51. I'm going to turn to Psalm 27 real quick. David said, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to talk to God and spend time with him in intimacy. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And so I'm going to encourage us to inquire in the Lord's temple tonight um, and inquire of the Lord the reason why I asked you to turn to Psalm 51 was because this is a psalm that David play, prayed after he was caught in the sin with Bathsheba. And it's a psalm of repentance. 
And in there, David prays a prayer that I want us to learn and know as, as, as Christ followers, as Christians, because I think it'll, it'll be valuable to you and to me um, in times of connecting with God. And in Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, in verse 10, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners to be converted converted to you. And then look at verse 16. And David, David repeats that lesson that, Saul, um, that Samuel taught Saul that we talked about tonight. He said, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not desire delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. God is not interested in sacrifice, which means you're not going to pay and give and do to make God happy. He's more interested in you being broken and repentant and have a heart that wants to know him and love him and serve him. And God can deal with your inconsistencies. God can deal with, with things in your life that are not perfect. If in your heart, you love God and you're saying to God, God, I want to, I want to serve you. I want to know you. And God, forgive me for those things that are inconsistent. That's not what I want to do. That's not who I am. God, I love you. I, I appreciate you. I need you. God, forgive me. And if your heart is broken, even though you're, you're sinning on the outside, and desiring to be right with God, God can deal with that. But, but if you're justifying the sins um, in your life and the things you do by making sacrifices to God to make amends for him, God's not interested in that. If you're doing things in the flesh or giving or, 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 or doing things to justify areas of your life that are not right, that's not what God is interested in. God is interested in a broken and a contrite heart. And, and that's the opportunity that you have. In the next minute, as we sing this last song and receive communion, um, and I do mean a minute, so worship team, if you guys don't mind closing us in a song, um, we'll have you come up. And then uh, let's go ahead for time's sake, and uh, I'm going to have you guys um, come on forward, please. And we have a small enough crowd now. We're not going to get too overcrowded. So come on up. We'll have you take this back to your seat, and I'm going to pray for it and us, and then, and then give you guys one song to get alone with the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for communion, God. And Father, we thank you for this bread, which represents your body that was broken for us. Lord, we thank you for this cup, which represents your blood that was shed for us. And Jesus, we, we do it in, in remembrance of you as you taught, as you told us, Jesus. We remember the, the amazing price that you paid on a cross for our sins, Jesus. We remember, Lord Jesus, the invitation that you gave us to come into the Holy of Holies and have intimacy with you. We thank you, Father, that King David um, teaches us a lesson of, of personal intimacy with God. And King David, who was a shepherd and a lover of people and a lover of music and of dance and of, of, of all things, Lord, in his life, as he was just a, a man who lived life to the fullest, and God loved you to the fullest. And Lord, we thank you that, that we have opportunity to, to know you. And Lord, if it is your will for us as your people, because you said that you created us for your, your pleasure and for fellowship and you call us friends, Lord, that we could talk to you and have conversation with you and ask you questions and, and hear your voice. And Lord, I know for each one of us, God, that if we spend time doing this and we feel like we're hearing you talk back to us, that, that we'll do it more and more. And so Lord, speak to us, God, we ask, Lord. 
We ask that we that you'd speak through your word and speak to our hearts and Lord that we'd enjoy our time um, praying and conversating with you and and just having conversations with you, Lord. And God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.